somebody and say, it's good to see you. Now look back at them and say, it's good to see me too, all right? Hey, we're so glad that you're here. Welcome to Crossroads Church. My name's Sam. I have the great privilege of being the lead pastor here at Crossroads. And what that means is every single week I try to tell the greatest story ever told. Now, not because I'm some great communicator or it's even my story, but I believe this story is a story about Jesus. And Jesus is the greatest person to ever walk the face of the planet. I actually believe he's more than just a person. I believe he's God in the flesh. And so if you've ever asked the question, what is God like, you don't have to look any further than the person of Jesus. And we believe the Bible is this story about Jesus. We say this around here. We say it's all about Jesus. We wrote it on the wall if you need some help. And what that means is you're going to need a Bible to follow along. And so if you forgot your Bible, we got you covered. You can just slip up your hand. One of our ushers will get one to you. And then if you don't have a Bible, take that one. That's our gift to you. We pray that you read it every single day because every time you read the Bible, you get to meet with Jesus. Amen? Amen. You can do a little better than that. Every time you read the Bible, you get to meet with Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. That's better. Hey, so I want you to turn in your Bible to uh, the first book of the Bible. Usually before I get up here, I bookmark where I'm going to be at, and I uh, stood off to the side and was like, let me bookmark where I'm going to be, and I was like, do I really need to bookmark the first page of the Bible? Uh, So uh, turn to the book of Genesis as we continue on in our series uh, entitled Good News from the Start. This is a study in the book of Genesis. And so uh, once you're at that first page of the Bible, uh, once you say amen when you're there. So we're going to read this opening um, passage here and kind of look at what Genesis says, and then we're going to talk about the implications for that. Starting in verse 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, one of the most famous verses in all of the Bible. The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God, God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and morning the first day. You're going to see uh, a pattern. You're going to see the poetry in the text. And God said, let there be an expanse in the, the midst of the waters, and let, the wa- and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so, and God called the expanse heavens, or in the Hebrew word, skies. This is another word for skies. Some translations will say heavens, but they saw it as sky. And so when he says the expanse that he created was called the sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together. He called seas and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants, yielding seeds and fruit trees, bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. 
And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its own kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and morning the third day. Now this is going to be a part of some of our discussion. I want you to look at what happens next. And then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be signs for the seasons and for the days and the years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, a greater light to rule the day and the lesser to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts on the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image. Notice the verbiage there. Let us make man in our our image. Let us make man in our image, after our our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast on the earth, and to every bird in the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that was made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we love you, and we thank you for who you are and who you are to us. We ask for your grace that you would help us this first chapter of Genesis. I thank you that you would help us ponder the implications and that we would wrestle with the text and we'd wrestle with what it says and what it doesn't say and that you would help us as we see that your plan has always been good for us. It's been good news from the start. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. How many of you were nervous while I was reading that? 
I was nervous. You know, some people say that their worst fear is public speaking. Let me tell you what is worse, public reading. <laughs> that is way more terrifying than, and I'm going to read an entire chapter in front of all of these people, and everyone is anticipating. Some of you are nervous, like, don't mess up, don't mess up, don't mess up, right? And yet, I don't think about it till halfway through, and I'm like, this is a long time to be reading in front of all these people, and nerves start to well up, and I thank God for his grace and his gifts for us, and I made it through. And I thank God for that gift. And, and, and so let me, uh, let me say that I, I feel like God has put me in a position to be able to, to uh, come before you to speak, to, uh, to read from time to time, and, and, and try to teach and convey things. But let me just get this right out in the open. Let me tell you what I am not. And let's, let's make sure we are very clear about these things, because as a pastor, let me tell you, I cannot be all things to all people. If you put your faith and trust in me, I will fail you. Someone say amen to that. Right? You can do a little better than that. Amen. So this crowd's like, I don't know. What do we? I, I I don't know how I feel about that. Let, let me tell you what I'm not, because when you open the pages of Genesis, and here's one of the things we have to begin to talk about and ponder, which is uh, we teach through books of the Bible. And we teach through books of the Bible so that you do not have a dependency on a person, a teacher, a guru, but you depend on the person of Jesus who is revealed through the pages of Scripture. Oh, that's pretty good. You should say amen to that. And so what I want to do is try to help you hunt, help you learn, help you uh, discover, help you search, rather than being dependent on someone's voice, but to be dependent on the Word of God. And so what we endeavor to do is teach through books of the Bible. And that can be a difficult thing because ultimately we have to wrestle with what the Bible says and the interpretation of that text. And, and then people's perception of what parts of the Bible do they adhere to. What, what parts of the Bible are they tempted to ignore? What parts of the Bible are they tempted to, uh, to add to their uh, life? What's their favorite verse of the Bible? Which I think is a terrible way to think about the Bible. You're like, oh, wait, I got favorite Bible verse. You know what your favorite Bible verse is? All of them. Right, and, and, and we should look at those and, and think about the ones I don't like as much as the ones I do like. And yet, I, I, I want to help us wrestle with this book. And, and really, this book is a book in, in the front of a library of books we call the Bible, 66 books of the Bible that are written very different one from the other. And, and there's genres and literature that we have to understand that each book of the Bible has a different type of literature to it, and, and it dictates how we read it. And so we have to wrestle even with this particular book. And even inside of those genres and inside of those books, there's actually different genres inside of it. There's, there's poetry, there's history, there's allegory, there's analogies, there's illustration. There's things that we take literally, and then there are things that we take as metaphor, and yet there are some things that are metaphor that we have to take very literally. 
What do you mean by that? Well, we are all always wrestling with different analogies or different ways of reading, rather, of the scriptures. And we'll say things like that, like a, a huge skeptic of someone who says, I adhere to the Bible. You go, well, you don't, you don't read it literally, do you? Well, it depends on what you mean by literal. And yet the Bible says that God is a rock. Well, how do you take that? Do you take that literally? Like, is he literally a rock or is he a rock of sorts? He is actually literally a rock, meaning a foundation for me. He is solid, something that I can stand on. That's very literal in the metaphor. Or if you say, you know what, I got a speeding ticket the other day because I was flying down 246. Well, were you literally flying down 246? Yes. And that's why you literally got a ticket. <laughs> and yet, uh, we, we have to wrestle with what, what do we mean? And sometimes we become too rigid in our categories with how we read it. And, and so some of the reason why is because I think we have to wrestle with what does the book actually say? And then what does it not say? So I think sometimes what gets convoluted is what does the Bible say and what does it not say? I mean, some of us have grown up around religion, and in our country, a lot of us have some type of perception of religion, uh, particularly a Judeo-Christian worldview, because Western civilization has been built on a Judeo-Christian worldview. The advancement of human rights, the advancement of, of the value of the individual, not that some other tribe was other than you, something other than human. And so it doesn't, didn't matter how you treated them. The Bible came along and said, love your neighbor as yourself. No other book did that. This book is revolutionary. And th this book advanced modern civilization. Although there's an attack against that, we have to wrestle with. And there's a great book called The, the, the Book That Made Your World. And it talks about, it's from an Indian man who grew up in India who talks about the, uh, the oppressive nature of his religion and how the Bible was the very thing that liberated society. And, and so yet we have to look at the Bible in its context because there's this, this new effort to say that the Bible is pulling us back. The, the Bible is keeping us down. The Bible is, is purely myth and fable, and yet it's on the same lines as pixie dust and fairy tales, and it pulls us backwards rather than advance us forward the way scientific thought does. And yet this is one of those pages that really cause us to wrestle with whether or not we believe that or not. Maybe you've wrestled with those questions. You've had those questions before. And then you're going to come to a church service where we open the very part of the book and read an entire sequence where we believe that God created the heavens and the earth. And then it goes into the sequence of creation. There's, we talked about this last week. That, do you know that, that science has not always agreed what the Bible has been saying for millennia, which is that the universe actually had a beginning? 
See, we have to wrestle with uh, what we mean by science. Do we mean a person who cannot be criticized? You can take that or leave that if you'd like. Or or is it a, a method by which we observe the known world and take conclusions and make guesses, educated guesses and hypotheses based on what I can actually see and observe and what is repeatable and what can I look at? And then you have to wrestle with what is modern science and how did modern science actually come to be? And why did it come out of Europe with these... Judeo-Christians who believe that they could actually discover things about the universe. They could discover mathematics and, 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 and laws of motion and, and we could observe and repeat because they believe that the universe actually had a order to it that could be observed and deduced from and learn about and it would be repeatable meaning they could find laws in nature because they believed there was a legislator. This did not come from any other worldview. This did not come out of any other religion. It came from this book. And we have to wrestle with that reality because there is a new idea that is saying that this book actually can't further scientific exploration, that it actually holds it back. And we have to wrestle with, is that true? And so when we get to the pages like this, we're, we're going to wrestle with our world view, how we view the world. We've been talking about this, and we'll continue to talk about this, but you as an individual, you have a worldview. You have a view in which you see everything, and they come in essential categories that you have to wrestle with. They, they deal with origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. They answer these big questions. How did we get here? Uh, Why am I here? What am I doing while I'm here? And where is this thing going? And you'll find yourself in different areas of your life having to wrestle with these questions. Sometimes you'll want to ignore different categories of or different questions inside of this. Sometimes you'll want to ignore the origin of life. That's not really my thing. That's not what I want to wrestle with. I I, I don't want to deal with the origins of life, but you'll find yourself in a particular area where you have to wrestle with meaning. Maybe you lose your job. Maybe you're trying to figure out, why am I here? Am I really just made up of random, unguided processes? And yet, at the end of this whole thing, there's nothing, an eternal sleep, a non-existence once this thing ends. See, every worldview has to be consistent from beginning to end. They wrestle and dive into these questions. And, and you'll, you'll have to try to find your way uh, along this process. And yet, here we get to this book, In the Beginning, is going to deal with this first question, the origins of things, the beginning of things. And yet, modern science is just now agreeing, and yet... Anytime you see scientists say uh, there's a consensus, what it tells you is there's actually a debate. What it should tell you, if they they say four out of five dentists agree, (laughs) 
I want to know what the other guy thought about it, right? And yet we have to be careful because science is driven by the outlier. Science is driven by the one who doesn't accept the consensus but wrestles with what he's actually seeing, doesn't just buy what's being sold to him because it's by popular majority, but actually says, what is the truth and how do I find the answers. And see, I want to tell you that that's actually the very basis of this book. People who wrestle with truth. Maybe you grew up in a church, maybe you grew up in a religious setting where they squashed doubts and squashed questions. This is not one of those places. And I can tell you this book is not propagating that idea, but this book actually propagates the idea that you are to wrestle and to discover and find truth. And what I'm convinced of is that if we fight well, others will win. If you fight with truth, if you fight and wrestle, your children will win. Instead of just accepting what's being fed to you, instead of just accepting what the preacher tells you or the scientist, the popular one on a magazine, what the news gives you, what the bottomless pit that is social media, whatever you're finding, you have to fight with it and go, do I believe this? Is this true? Because if you just accept without some type of discernment, Let me tell you, you'll lead yourself into folly and those who follow you will trip, stumble, and fall because if the blind lead the blind, we'll all fall in the ditch, friends. So then we have to wrestle with these big ideas. And that's why we're going through the book of Genesis. That's why I want to help us. But but let me tell you, I'm no scientist. I'm no physicist. I'm, I'm gonna get, I, I tried to listen to some things about quantum physics this week, and let me tell you, I was quantumly confused. <laughs> I, 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 try to, I try to wrestle with it, and sometimes I gotta be honest, when I, when, when I come to a position like this, I, I try as a pastor, I go, man, I, how in the world am I gonna take a book that took me 18 hours to listen to and to drive across the country, how am I gonna put that into a 40-minute sermon? You're like, this is gonna last for 40 minutes, jeez. Right? And yeah, yeah, I try to figure out, like, how do I become all things to all people? Let me tell you, as I said already, let me let the cat out of the bag. I cannot be that. But here's the beautiful thing is the Bible says that we're all different and we have different gifts. And that God has actually given gifts to the church. So let me tell you, I'm not a representation of all of the church or all of Christianity. And someone should say, thank God, amen, hallelujah, praise Jesus. This is not our guy, right? And yet God has given gifts to the church. Ephesians says it this way, that God has given apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers in order to equip the saints for the work of ministry. You are the saints of God, sinners saved by grace, made righteous because of Jesus. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God, the saints of God. That's you. You are the ministers here. I am the equipper. You go, man, are you a minister? All of you are, right? And ministry means to serve. And you have to ask the question, how do I serve my family? How do I serve my spouse? How do I serve my community? How do I wrestle and push forward so that I can actually adequately 
adequately serve those around me, pushing them forward, where the Bible says, speaking the truth in love, that all people will grow into the knowledge of Jesus and will supply energy and nourishment one to another as the church grows itself in love. So you have gifts, and there are gifts to the church. One of those gifts to the church is a man by the name of Stephen Meyer. Stephen Meyer is a, a New York Times bestselling author and scientist. He's a PhD from Cambridge, the same place that Stephen Hawking got his PhD. And, and Stephen Meyer is a uh, believer in the person of Jesus, the same way that I am, that I said that this book is about Jesus, the greatest person in human history. And he's not just a person, he's God in the flesh. Stephen Meyer actually believes that. And Stephen Meyer actually believed that God created the heavens and the earth. Here's what Stephen Meyer does not believe. Stephen Meyer does not believe that God used evolution as a way to start the process of creation and then remove himself instead of using supernatural ways of creating to use a natural, unguided, random process in order to produce all of what we know to be our reality. See, I started thinking about what should I talk about when it comes to Genesis. I started thinking about all the questions that Genesis would bring up. I started thinking about what do we really need to address because most of us in here, I would say most of us who are attending a church have some type of belief and maybe you believe the first part of the scriptures which says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and you're like I am there all the way this is my verse I believe that when I stand at the beach I'm like this is amazing right when, when I look at God's creation I know that there is a creator if I look at a building I know there's a builder if I look at a clock I know there's a clock maker if I look at a painting there's a painter if I hear the sounds of a sonnet I know that there's an artist, a musician behind it. I know that the creative order that I see and perceive, not chaos, not raw materials, but the very essence of order and design and creation tells me that there is a creator. Now, Richard Dawkins, a renowned atheist, and, and, and kind of the, the, the team members of the new atheist, would, uh, he, he begins to talk about his faith growing up. And, he, and someone asked him in, in a debate, Mr. Dawkins, when did you leave your faith? How did you lose your faith? And he said, when I started believing Darwin, when I discovered Darwin, when I discovered evolution, that is when I realized that there was no need for a designer there was no need for a creator what do you what do you mean uh, he, he began to say that although when we look at creation there is the appearance of design we must avoid the temptation to infer a designer now think about that statement the word temptation tempting me to do something evil when you talk about temptation you you talk about being tempted to do something that you should not do and that's how he phrases his statement. He says, even though we see the appearance of design, although with my eyes and what I observe, which is a scientific method, mind you, 
that I would see and observe. And although I may see what appears to be design in creation, I must avoid the temptation, meaning I must avoid doing something evil or wrong or something that I should not do. This is how the question is framed. Why does he frame it that way? Because Richard Dawkins believes that anyone who does not believe in evolution is either ignorant, stupid, or wicked. This is a statement from Richard Dawkins, that if you do not believe in this, you are ignorant, insane, or wicked. He sees that those who are tempted to believe in a designer, those who are persuaded, Those who with logic and reason, with a mind, with a consciousness, will look at the created order of the universe and decide that there is no way that order and something can come from nothing unless there is a cause, an initiator, a mechanism. He is suggesting that these people are ignorant, insane, or wicked. So he says we must avoid that temptation. Now here's what's happened in the church. Here's where I feel like my role comes in. Is there's a contingent of people who've not wanted to be called ignorant, insane, wicked. How many of you wake up in the morning and you're like, that's the title I would like for the day, right? <laughs> Like, none of us think like that, and so we try to avoid that. We're, we, we are actually made for community, and so when, when we are disconnected from people or they don't like us, man, uh, man, we avoid that feeling. We move in groups where people affirm us and accept us. We don't really find ourselves in disagreement, uh, and we don't do it well, and we, we don't seek out disagreement in the last couple years of our election cycle should tell us that that we are terrible at it someone say amen to that we don't seek that out and so here's what we've done is we've given up the fight see there used to be a solid fight from churches from intellectuals from people who believed in Jesus that there was a strong contention of people who rejected the works of Charles Darwin who set out to explain away the appearance of design through natural selection, to explain away the appearance of design, the need for a creator. And yet, we used to fight that doctrine, and then we gave up the fight. We stopped fighting that. We didn't want to be seen as ignorant, unscientific. And so we avoided the argument. We avoided the evidence. We accepted it based on what we were told rather than actually digging to find the truth. Can I tell you that even leading evolutionary biologists have been convening together over the last decade to talk about the problems of Darwinian evolution, talking about its lacking in evidence to show actual mechanisms for creativity. There's actually convenient. Now, they're not tempted to say, well, now I believe in the Judeo-Christian God. But they're saying Darwin is lacking. 
Stephen Meyer actually uh, testified in the Texas State School Board as they were fighting this idea of in schools on whether or not they could teach creationism. Stephen Meyer uh, is a proponent of an intelligent design argument. And yet, the theory of evolution to be taught showing the strengths and weaknesses of both arguments. Meaning we should have both sides of the debate. He wasn't a proponent for taking Darwinian evolution out of schools, but he was a proponent for putting intelligent side design next to it and allow the best argument to win. Now, here's the irony of that, is that the proponents for Darwinian evolution in this, uh, this public hearing of the Texas State School Board, they said that there are no weaknesses in the theory of evolution. And yet, at the same time, evolutionary biologists and the peer-reviewed journals are beginning to discuss the very weaknesses and trying rapidly to come up with a new theory which would explain away the weaknesses. Even Charles Darwin himself had doubts about his own theory. And yet, there's a group of people, even inside of the church, there are whole organizations. A few years back when I taught on this very thing, we did a summer series called Ask Anything, and, and we talked about the origins of the universe, and we talked about Darwinian evolution. Afterwards, I was approached by a man who was attending the church, and he said, hey, have you ever heard of this organization called BioLogos? And BioLogos is an organization of Christians, believers, who believe that God used evolution in order to create all that we see. The president of BioLogos writes this, although God in his sovereignty could have chosen to use supernatural action to create new species, evolutionary creationists are convinced by the evidence in the created order that God chose to use natural mechanisms. Now here's what she's essentially saying. God could have in his sovereignty supernaturally created the universe, but instead he chose to use a natural sequence of prof of, of natural secret sequence of processes in order to create all of our reality. Now the irony of this, Stephen Meyer talks about, is that at the same time when the actual scientists are beginning to critique evolution and potentially Darwin's theory of evolution, to begin to say we need a new theory, is at the same time this has crept into the church and into Christianity that says, no, 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 we accept it at face value. In Stephen Meyer's new book, The Return to the God Hypothesis, he actually has an entire chapter addressing BioLogos and how what he essentially says is the studies that BioLogos puts on their website and propagates and there are prominent Christian theologians who also sign off on this particular organization that ultimately the studies that they are putting forward are false and misinformation based on the peer-reviewed studies. What's the point of that? When you read the opening pages of Scripture, you're going to have to wrestle with your worldview. 
You're going to have to be, you're going to have to wrestle with what you taught, you were taught. Do I take this at face value? Do I listen to smart people? And listen, this pastor who's really going to evolution right now, he's got a Southern accent. He can't be that smart, right? And, and so we begin to think, I will, I will appeal to authority. I will appeal to those smarter than who have more power, money, fame. See, we have a tendency to do this. Rather than wrestling with truth, we want someone to spoon feed us what we think. We don't want to discover it. We just want to be told. We want it handed to us. That's where we're at. So here's what I want to do for us over the next five minutes, and then I'll come and try to wrap this up in just a moment. The problem is, is that we have Christians, and this is what I wanted to wrestle with, is when we open this, the pages of this text, and it's going to take us a while to even get to what does the Bible say. Here's what we got to wrestle with. The Bible tells us that God created everything. What it does not say, and we have to wrestle with, is ultimately how long that process took. Well, it actually says the first day, the second day, the third day. Well, I don't know if you caught this, but the sun and moon was not put in there until after day three. Is it day three or day four? You help me. Uh... The fourth day. On the fourth day, the sun and the moon are instituted. So a 24 literal day, which is what we base on, that is in relation to the sun. The sun is not there until day four. And yet, there is time. There's evening and morning. There is light in the expanse of the universe. Einstein's theory of relativity puts space and time together, that you cannot have matter without time. And so as soon as there is matter, there is time. That's why uh, Stephen Hawking can take the Big Bang Theory and extrapolate through the red shift and look out into the cosmos. Einstein believed that the universe was eternal. He did not believe it had a beginning until he saw through the Hubble telescope. Is that right? The, California, right? You know all about this, right? Until he looked through the Hubble telescope and saw the evidence from his own theory that the universe had to have a beginning. And yet, we have to wrestle with what do I believe about all of this? Is it 24-hour day? Is time uh, different for God than, than man? Yes, the Bible says that a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years unto a day. So I have to wrestle with what does the Bible tell me? The Bible tells me there's time introduced. Science tells me that if there's matter, there's time. It does not say that each day was a literal 24-hour day. So we'll wrestle with what is the age of the earth. We'll wrestle with is the earth old? Is the earth young? Yes. But here's what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that God initiated the process and like deism suggests, that he removed himself from it because he's impersonal. What it does not say is that God said, let there be light and then did nothing else. It does not say that God was a part of the initiation but then not a part of the process. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to watch a video by Stephen Meyer. So through the organization PragerU, 
there's a series of videos that you can watch. This is one about evolution that talks about the problems of Darwinian evolution and introducing what science calls the theory of intelligent design. Check this out. Evolution. You learned about it in high school. It goes like this. Life started out with very simple forms and then gradually, over hundreds of millions of years, morphed into all the forms we see today. Bacteria to Beethoven. Not a straight line, of course, but that's roughly how it went. This was the theory proposed by Charles Darwin in 1859, and with some modification, it's been embraced as unassailable by the scientific community over the last century. As evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins says, if you meet somebody who claims not to believe in evolution, that person is either ignorant, stupid, or insane. But is that right? Are there no scientific reasons to doubt the evolutionary account of life's origins? In November 2016, I attended a conference in London convened by some of the world's leading evolutionary biologists. The purpose? To address growing doubts about the modern version of Darwin's theory. Let's look at just two scientific reasons to doubt this theory. First, the Cambrian explosion. A weird and wonderful thing happened 530 million years ago. A whole bunch of major groups of animals, what scientists call the phyla, appeared abruptly within a geologically short window of time, about 10 million years. These novel animal forms, exhibiting prototypes of most animal body designs we see today, emerged in the fossil record without evidence of earlier ancestors. Did you catch that? A huge number of diverse animals appeared with no discernible antecedents. So where did they come from? This question really bothered Darwin, and he acknowledged that he could give it no satisfactory answer. Nor can scientists today. The renowned biologist Eugene Koonin of the National Center for Biotechnology Information describes the abrupt appearance of the Cambrian animals and other organisms such as dinosaurs, birds, flowering plants, and mammals as a pattern of biological big bangs. So what caused all these new forms of life to arise? That question leads to a second big doubt the DNA enigma. In the 1950s, James Watson and Francis Crick made a startling discovery. The DNA molecule stores information as a four-character digital code. Strings of precisely sequenced chemicals inside the DNA helix store the instructions, the information, for building the crucial proteins that cells need to survive. Unless the chemical letters in the DNA text are sequenced properly, a protein molecule will not form. No proteins, no cells. No cells, no living organisms. Bill Gates has said DNA is like a software program. Let's think about that for a second. For computers to run faster and perform more functions, they require new code. Well, the same is true for life. To build new forms of life, the evolutionary process would need to produce new genetic information, new code. But this raises questions about the creative power of natural selection and mutation. Natural selection is a simple sorting process. Species keep favorable mutations that allow them to survive, but eliminate bad mutations that cause their members to die out. No one doubts that natural selection is a real process and that it produces minor variations. But many biologists now doubt that it produces major innovations in biological form. To see why, think again about software. What happens if you introduce a few random changes into computer code? you'll likely mess it up, right? Though it might still work if you don't make too many changes. 
but if you make enough random changes, your program will stop functioning altogether. You certainly can't keep doing this and expect some cool new program to pop out. There's a mathematical reason for this. In all codes and languages, there are vastly more ways of arranging characters that will generate gibberish than there are arrangements that will generate meaningful sequences. And this applies to DNA. Remember, natural selection only selects sequences that random mutations generate. Yet experiments have established that DNA sequences capable of making stable proteins are extremely rare and thus really hard to stumble on randomly. How rare? While working at Cambridge University, molecular biologist Douglas Ack showed that for every DNA sequence that generates a relatively short functional protein, there are 10 to the 77th power non-functional sequences. Now consider that there are only 10 to the 65th power atoms in our galaxy. So finding a new DNA sequence capable of building a functional protein is like searching blindfolded for a single marked atom among a trillion Milky Way galaxies. Talk about a needle in a haystack. As I show in my book Darwin's Doubt, even four billion years of life's history is not enough time to overcome a search problem this big. So two serious doubts about modern Darwinian theory. The Cambrian explosion, the sudden appearance of new animals, which evolutionary theory has failed to explain, and the DNA enigma, the implausibility of random mutations producing the information needed to build new forms of animal life. Scientists who know about these problems are not ignorant, stupid, or insane. They are just appropriately skeptical. I'm Stephen Meyer, Senior Fellow at the Discovery Institute for Prager University. So you have to wrestle with, is this settled, or will I wrestle with, what do I believe? And that's essentially what I want to bring before us today. Because how you answer this question begins to cause you to look at, how do I see everything? Because origin has to do with meaning. Meaning, morality, morality. What happens when we die? Where is this thing going? See, the last part of that video talks about the probability of natural selection actually producing new life forms. See, if, any, if there, with anyone with intellectual honesty, we'll talk about the mathematical problem of this theory. They'll wrestle with, like, is this even possible? There's all these theories that are being introduced into our ethos, like string theory or the multiverse. They're coming up with so many ideas that, that they can't explain away intelligent design that people are beginning to propagate that maybe aliens, extraterrestrial beings in another universe, somehow had the building blocks of lives and seeded our universe with life. They are so dead set on trying to convince us against the opening pages of Scripture, which says, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It looks like your guitar is not working, so we'll just take that off and you can have us. 
It's all good. You can play the acoustic if you like. <laughs> Let me wrap up as quick as I can. This past week, I, I, uh, I flew across the country to, to buy my wife a, a new van. Uh, uh, we have a lot of children, and uh, she needed a bus. <laughs> and uh, so I, I literally on Monday flew to Chicago in the middle of the night. I, I spent the night in O'Hare, and then that next morning, I, I paid a guy 100 bucks to come get me and take me to this dealership in Nowhere, Illinois. <laughs> And for the next several days until Friday, I drove across the country. And, uh, and yes, the deals are way better outside of California. <laughs> and people are like, is it that? But yeah, it's that much better. And, and yet this crazy thing happened on the, f- in the first night that I left. And I was completely blown away. I, I, I flew out of Santa Barbara and I was so stoked. We've had so many points that we forgot about because when we fly, we have to buy six tickets. So it gives you a lot of points. And, I was, and we were just like, maybe I could get a ticket on our points. And, and I had so many tickets that I got to fly first class Woo, for $5. It's the only time it will ever happen. It will never happen again. And... And I was so stoked. I flew first class and I ended up in Phoenix and I got there uh, um, right on time, but my next flight was delayed. So I had about an hour and a half. So I go to a restaurant. I'm like, man, I'm just going to milk this because I'm going to get to O'Hare at two o'clock in the morning and I'm going to have to try to sleep in. So I'm just going to make the most of it. I'm going to go eat a nice meal. And, um, and I realized there are no nice meals in the airport. And, uh, and yet as I was sitting there eating my uh, TV dinner, um, I looked over my shoulder and there I saw David and Kate Hernandez. Now you may go, who's David and Kate Hernandez? They go to the Lompoc campus. And I could not believe this. I, I look over, I go, no way. And, and, and and I completely jump up from my seat. I run over and I jump in from like, hey. And they're like, oh my gosh. They're like, yeah, God, right? Right? And they're like, Andrew, uh, uh, come, come, come here. Uh, Jackie, look, look who it is. And then I, I go over and I, they had just spent an entire week in Europe. And their family went there because... Andrew, who told me at the men's group the week before, he was going to go propose to Jackie. And then we saw that she said yes. And here they are in Phoenix, in front of me. And I'm like, no one's going to believe this. Let's document this. There they are. I was like, can you believe this? That, like, what is the probability of sing so like not like you spend an entire week i never fly i'm flying in the middle of the night i'm flying first class i'm going for i'm getting ready to drive across the country like how often does that happen i don't know every couple of years and uh and like what's the probability of seeing david and kate who's an incredible addition to the lompoc campus i love them and andrew and, and, and then jackie and they're all there and they're so excited i go man we gotta pray 
gonna pray. So, we're so glad to see you. And we start praying and we pray for their marriage going forward and their life and what God's brought them together and what he's healing and what he's doing and amazing relationship that God's place. So then I drive across the country and I'm so glad I, I had a bunch of, I had a whole slideshow I was going to show you. It's like, I was going to show you how I ended up in 37 degree weather in Colorado and then 80 degrees in the same day in Utah and, and there's snow and mountains. It's amazing. I'll tell you another time. And, and then Friday, I, I have one last push home from St. George, Utah. I got, I stopped once and I, 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 as quick as I could, except for buying premium beef jerky in Las Vegas gas station, because this is no ordinary gas station. I told my son that and he's like, there's nothing ordinary in Vegas. <laughs> How do you know that? You're nine. <laughs> and yet he's like, this is crazy. And yet the timing of all of it. And then I don't stop one stop. That was it. Seven and a half hours ends up being eight with traffic. And I make my way. I come through Santa Clarita, Santa Paula into Ventura. And I come up the coast and I look over and there's a Tesla and it's Andrew (laughs) that I saw in Phoenix four days ago on his commute back from Ventura where he has a business called Brothers of Industry where they have uh, this great construction company. And here's Andrew who I saw in another city across the country. And I was like, what are the chances of this? And I'm like, I just want to tell you, someone else took that picture. It was a GoPro I had strapped on the side of the car. I, I called him. I'm like, slow down. I got to take a picture of this, <laughs> right? Don't judge me, California. All right. And yeah, I, I started thinking about this. I started thinking about the odds of it. I started thinking about the probability of it. And see, here's what kind of happens depending on your worldview. Because the reality is, is even though I feel like it's impossible, it's still probable. Even though I think the odds of of meeting someone, well, you know, Santa Barbara has connecting flights through Phoenix. They're coming back. I mean, the odds are astronomical, but it's still possible. And then what are the odds of me driving from Tuesday morning in Illinois to Friday for any longer in that extraordinary gas station in Vegas getting beef jerky? Any more time, any more, if I had to fill up one more time, what are the odds of me coming around the corner off the 126 onto the 101 and passing the same guy that I saw four days ago in Phoenix out of nowhere? What are the odds? Well, he works there. It's about that time. So maybe there's a possibility. See, here's what you'll have to do. Depending on your worldview, If you back up and say, God has used unguided, undirected processes, random and meaningless, the coincidences of your life, the people God puts in your life, they won't have meaning. They'll just be probability. And yet we're tempted to believe in evolutionary theory Christians, 
against improbable odds, astronomical, even greater than meeting someone in an airport in Phoenix that you know, or passing them four days later in Ventura on their commute home. You'll believe that. And if you do, you'll miss that God in the beginning created everything. And he created you and I, and he's not absent. He's not far away. We don't believe in deism. We believe in the very sovereignty of God who is holding and guiding and directing. And now your life, when in the, in the minuscule, you go, man, this can't be coincidence. You say, oh my God. Unbelievable. God, what are you doing? Let's pray. Let's thank him. Let's look to him. See, as we go through this text, you'll have to wrestle with, are you just random sequences of natural process? Are you simply the result of monkeys on typewriters coming up with the sonnets of Shakespeare? Or are you fearfully and wonderfully made? You have a designer and a creator who's handcrafted you to do good works in advance. See, for me, that's good news. That's good news from the start. God's in the mix and he's not distant from us. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are and who you are to us. Against all odds, you put us here in this moment for this sermon in this community with this group of people and you ordained it and you designed it and we won't ignore the meaning behind it we'll seek truth we'll look for you we'll ask God what do you have me here for thank you for guiding thank you for directing thank you for organizing all things that one day you would send your son Jesus and he would change everything we thank you, we praise you, and let everything we say and everything we do bring glory to God and good to this valley. And everyone said, amen. Will you give Jesus one more hand clap of praise?